Start your morning with the CNN Daily News Briefing. In just three minutes, we'll tell you about the stories that are making headlines around the world. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play the CNN Daily News Briefing or find us in your favorite podcast app. It is hard to say good evening tonight. 100,000 people in this country have now died of coronavirus. Mothers and fathers, grandparents and children, brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors. Tonight, the president has yet to say a single word about this stunning milestone, about the 100,000 lives lost, or about all those who might have been spared. He returned from his trip to Florida tonight and kept silent today about the dead. As you know, he and others around him have suggested that COVID hasn't really killed all those people, though every public, nearly every public health expert will, t will tell you that the actual numbers of victims is likely higher. The first death we now know of was on February 6, less than four months ago. Imagine that. The virus has moved that fast and it continues to kill. We may have grown tired. It has not grown tired of us. How to think about 100,000 deaths. It's more than have died in all our wars from Vietnam till now. This virus that has now become as deadly as 50 Hurricane Katrina's. But comparisons fail to tell you of the, the pain and the sadness and the grief, grief that so many of us now feel. The president, who talked of America first, has, when it comes to COVID, reached that position. We are number one out of all the other countries in fatalities. We're number one. The U.S. has about 5% of the world's population, but nearly 30% of the deaths. We are number one. We are a world leader in medicine, medical research, and public health. We once created supply chains that helped win world wars. We're now a world leader in lives lost. The bars on this chart represent death from all causes in this country. The red bars on the right, so much taller than the rest, are since the outbreak began here. COVID's number one in America, and it's not over yet. New cases are still rising in some states, falling in others and steady elsewhere. The president is pushing hard to reopen as much of the country as fast as possible, and at the same time mocking those who wear masks and encouraging people to demonstrate against social distancing. He once said he was fighting a war. Now he fights to weaken our defenses against further spread and weaken any sense of unity. And unity is what you need to fight a war. Is anyone really surprised by the images we're now seeing? How some people behaved in their newly reopened states over the weekend? Also, how the president is behaving, what he's saying. Is anyone surprised? All the distractions that he's been indulging in, whether it's pushing a drug that can kill you or cyberbullying a dead woman and her family? Yeah, the President of the United States cyberbullying a dead woman and her family. Yes, of course, from the earliest days, he either downplayed the seriousness of the threat or played games with the numbers, numbers in this case of human beings in this country who have died or will die on his watch. It's one person coming in from China, and we have it under control. We have it very much under control in this country, very interestingly. Uh, we've had no deaths. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with the hotter weather. And that's a beautiful date to look forward to. People are getting better. They're all getting better. There's a very good chance you're not going to die. This is a flu. This is like a flu. Of the 15 people, the original 15, as I call them, uh, eight of them have returned to their homes. Uh, we're going down, not up. We're going very substantially down, not up. And again, when you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. Uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. It's going to disappear. One day it's like a miracle. It will disappear.
But we're going toward 50 or 60,000 people. 75, 80 to 100,000 people. That's a horrible thing. If we didn't do it, you would have had a million people, a million and a half people, maybe 2 million people dead. 2.2 million people if we did nothing. We would have lost probably higher than, it's possible, higher than 2.2. That's one of the reasons we're successful. That's one of the, if you call losing 80 or 90,000 people successful. If we could hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number. So we have between 100 and 200,000. Uh, we all together have done a very good job. Good job. 100,000 dead and counting. Millions of lives changed forever by the loss of those lives. Millions of moments that will never unfold. He said nothing today about 100,000 dead, but he's proud of the job. Proud of the job he's done on testing. Something South Korea, whose outbreak began almost simultaneously with ours, deployed to keep its death rate in the low hundreds. The president has consistently been proud of that. Well, we're testing uh, everybody that we need to test. Anybody that wants a test can get a test. We took over an obsolete, broken testing system. There's not a lot of issues with testing. The governors are supposed to do testing. We are lapping the world on testing. We have so much testing. I don't think you need that kind of testing and that much testing. We've done more testing than every other country combined. So in a way, by doing all of this testing, we make ourselves look bad. I have always said testing is somewhat overrated. Something can happen between a test where it's good and then something happens and all of a sudden. This is why the whole concept of tests aren't necessarily great. But testing certainly is a very important function, and we have prevailed. Remember when President Bush got criticized for saying Brownie doing a heck of a job uh, while people were waiting outside the convention center in Katrina? The president has essentially been saying that he's been doing a heck of a job every single day. He's been yelling it, shouting it. He seems to actually believe it. We have prevailed, he said there. The administration had the exact same lead time as South Korea to get a testing and contact tracing system up and running, and they didn't. And now they've chosen to kick the responsibility to the states while at the same time pushing those states to reopen and at the same time attacking masks and mocking leaders who wear them, though insisting everyone around him wears masks to keep him safe. How hypocritical is that? He talks now of a transition to greatness. Well, perhaps he might try a transition himself to decency, empathy, and competence. That would be a great transition indeed. I want to get perspective now on many fronts. You know, Chief White House Correspondent Jim Acosta joins us, our Chief Political Correspondent Dana Bash, and our Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and CNN Presidential Historian Douglas Brinkley. Sanjay, you've been on with me virtually every night since this started. 100,000 Americans uh, more now have died because of this virus. Um, didn't this number, I mean, th this many people did not have to die. We've seen other countries, South Korea, more effective. We've crossed this, this threshold. What, do, what are you thinking tonight? Well, first of all, it's just a, it's a gut punch, uh, Anderson. I mean, it just sort of took my breath away this afternoon when I first saw the, the, the threshold. I mean, we've, we've known this was, this was coming, this, this grim milestone. I think we've known for a few weeks uh, or so that this would happen, but it, I, I guess it still makes it no less painful uh, when it actually does happen. I, just like somebody that you know who is a, a patient or a friend of yours who's sick and you know they're sick, but then they, they you know, get really sick or die, and it still hurts. So this is, I think a lot of people are just going to be grieving and they're going to remember this day for a long time. But all the context that you gave, you know, uh, comparing this to, to wars or other things, 
as you said, one thing, one piece of context that should not be ascribed to this is that it was inevitable. This was not inevitable. There was a lot of preventable deaths out there. I remember Anderson, you and I in Haiti, and we would interview the Doctors Without Borders MSF, and they would call preventable deaths stupid deaths because you know they were you know something that we could have totally prevented, didn't need to happen, uh, knew what to do. And as you point out, there's countries around the world. I mean, it's easy, but I think fair criticism right now to say, how is a country? Yes, South Korea is one seventh the size of the United States. They had fewer than 300 deaths. They had the same information we did. They had the disease at the same time. They didn't have a magic therapeutic or a vaccine. This could have been done. And so it's tough to say on a day like today, Anderson, because I, I think a lot of people are watching. Uh, who, who may be family members of those who have died, and, and it's just, it's tough. Could, could my loved one's death have been prevented? You hate saying it out loud, but hopefully there's lessons that have been learned, I think, to answer your question, and lessons that we may need to apply right away, because we're not, I mean, this is by no means over. We're still in the middle of this, Anderson. Jim, I mean, at the White House, is does the coronavirus task force, I mean, are they still meeting every day? Are they... Is this something the president is still involved in? I mean, obviously, the White House is trying to put as much distance between the president and talk of this virus as possible. Um, right. But what are they actually doing? Are they, are they, you know, or is it now just up to the states? Anderson, I think the president is reaching for his distraction playbook more than he's reaching for his pandemic playbook. Uh, he has been uh, launching a whole series of distractions uh, over the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, just this evening, he's been tweeting out praise from uh, conservative commentator Lou Dobbs. He seems to be looking for a dear leader moment. Uh, he's, he seems to be looking for praise from his apologists and from aides over here at the White House instead of mourning with Americans over the fact that there are 100,000 lives lost now to the coronavirus here in the United States. Uh, they are not having as many coronavirus task force meetings over here. People like Dr. Anthony Fauci are not making as many visits over here to the White House. The president uh, is not uh, keeping tabs as often as he had been when we were racing up to this 100,000 mark uh, over the last several weeks. And so what the president is left with is what he has always been left with at times uh, when his back has been up against the wall. He, he reaches for distractions. Uh, tomorrow, we understand he's going to sign an executive order aimed at uh, these social media companies as he's been having this fight with Twitter. Uh, but uh, what we're all wondering is whether or not the president is going to make mention of the fact that 100,000 Americans have died from this virus, as you just set up in that series of clips uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, he still has to answer for uh, a whole litany of comments that he's made over the last three months that the virus would go away, that it would magically disappear. Uh, we didn't even play the clip, which I think may be the most damning clip from this entire crisis for the president when he suggested that Americans inject themselves with disinfectants. So there's just been a whole slew of missteps for this president every step of the way. I was talking with the Trump advisor earlier this evening about all of this. They are firmly convinced that when it comes down to election time in November, that the American people will blame China for all of this and not the president. Of course, we have video of the president praising President Xi and praising China for their handling of the virus at the beginning of this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, even on that injecting disinfectant, Jim, you know, the idea that he was talking to his, uh, you know, a government scientist and suggesting that government scientists, you know, actually put time and effort and experiment with this on human beings injecting. I mean, it still boggles my mind and boggles my so, mind that that's what led to the stopping of the briefings of the coronavirus task force. I mean, it's incredible yeah. to think that a just a gaffe, which the president then later lied about, 
would actually have a real-world consequence of stopping briefings by scientists uh, on a daily basis for the American people is, I mean, it, it's negligent. And that task force negligent. and those briefings, yeah, and, and that task force and those briefings have never been the same since that moment. That, that was sort of his uh, George Bush, uh, heck of a job, brownie moment, in my view. Uh, and when the president goes out there on the South Lawn or whatever venue he's on in Fox News, and he, he suggests that uh, Joe Biden has lost a step or he's sleepy Joe, uh, Joe Biden has never uh, suggested that Americans, uh, you know, inject themselves with disinfectants. And so uh, he has a just a whole library of comments that he's going to have to answer for over the next several weeks. Uh, the, the question is whether or not he can mark this moment. And it, it, it is a moment in American history. Uh, with with any kind of weight, yeah. uh, with any kind of compassion for people who are suffering out there. Douglas Brinkley, you wrote an extraordinary book about Hurricane Katrina, about the flood. Um, when you and you and I spoke a lot during those times, and you know the brownie heck of a job thing. I mean, the president has been saying he's been doing a heck of a job from the beginning on this. Yes, I mean he. You know, history is going to just um, mark the monumental failed leadership of Donald Trump through this COVID uh, crisis. I mean, we did lose two months, and you know, during uh, Katrina, we used to call the, that we lose lives in the 48-hour window of um, you have to get to people quickly, you've got to respond quickly, and there were lives lost because the Bush administration didn't move quickly enough. In, in the case of President Trump, we're dealing with probably 50,000 American lives um, that could have been saved because of his failed leadership. But what, what makes it even worse is we've had failed leaders in the world before. I mean, Neville Chamberlain didn't recognize the, the demon of Adolf Hitler, you know, for example. But, but we've never had uh, Herbert Hoover didn't recognize the stock market crash in the Great Depression. But they had empathy. Herbert Hoover and, and Chamberlain. This is a president with an empathy deficit disorder. He seems not to care that all these deaths, in my mind, he acts like they're inconvenient statistics that are hurting his chances of reelection. So he wants to push them aside and say it's not really real. And this makes Trump a very bizarre figure. And it's no matter what happens in this election, history will not shine a bright light on the way that he's navigated uh, these last four months. Hmm. Dana, it's also remarkable just the strategy he's now um, putting forward of undercutting the message from his own coronavirus task force, which has now basically been silenced. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he once talked about himself as a wartime president. This is a war against a silent enemy. You know, if the president of the United States during World War II was, on the one hand, you know, drafting people and sending them to fight, and at the same time suggesting that maybe they not follow the orders of their commanders or, you know, not really give it their all in the war effort back at home and show up at the factories if they don't really want to, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's stunning to me the two, that, that he's playing politics with a pandemic response. Very much so. I mean, that's a, a really important analogy. And the president did at the beginning. I mean, you showed kind of the, the arc of, of what happened with the president over the past two months. At the beginning, he downplayed it. He made, made it sound like it was nothing, that they had it under control. And then suddenly, when he realized it was very much not under control, but that he could play president on TV and play wartime president, um, he went in and took over the press conferences that the scientist, the vice president, uh, was having the press conferences. But he did uh, defer to the scientists so that Americans could get the information that they needed 
once he saw that that was a, a show with great ratings, he wanted to be the star until that moment that it all fell apart because uh, of his you know, ridiculous comment. And you're right. It was the poll numbers internally that they saw plummeting because of that uh, that made him change course in a big way and try to stay as far away from this pandemic as he could as he gets closer to re-election. Never mind the fact that America needs leadership right now in a very big way, and he's not interested. He's more interested in focusing on re-election, and that is clear with his comments on masks. That is clear uh, with everything that he is saying right now because the wartime president uh, playbook didn't work for him. He, he couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, Doug, I mean, the president declared himself a wartime president. If you declare that and then you don't follow through on it and you have a huge death toll, I mean, do you think his legacy will be defined by his response to COVID? I think it really will be. I mean, the, the big bell rang. He had, we had the big crisis, one of the worst ever, and he basically went AWOL. He got in a denial mode, and then he worried about himself only. And we look at presidents that we want to feel the empathy of an FDR telling depression people we have nothing to fear but fear itself and pulling the country together, or Ronald Reagan after the um, Challenger disaster in 1986, or Bill Clinton in Oklahoma City, on and on. There are all these great moments. Today should be a day of national mourning that we hit the 100,000 mark, and he should be leading that, that showing the open-heartedness of America, that there were mistakes, there were blunders, but instead he refuses to have a heart. And that's the part that makes our, uh, me most sad about what's happening here. It's not just a bungled policies, bad decision-making, but it's a president who doesn't seem to ever be able to express love to people unless they're ardent Trump supporters. And it makes him sort of a pathetic figure. And Sanjay, I mean, almost every single epidemiologist, metal expert agrees, one of the first steps that needed to be taken was, a, you know, a testing system, a robust national mm -hmm. testing system. And here we are, still one doesn't really exist. The Trump administration just points a finger, says it's the state's responsibility for contact tracing as well. Um, it just, the, I don't know of any other country that has had such a lack of, of centralized federal response. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite striking. I mean, a country that typically is a leader in these areas. I mean, there has been some legitimate criticism about the CDC's initial test uh, that was flawed. But uh, the CDC is typically the organization that many other countries look to, our CDC is, uh, for, for guidance on these types of things. And, and you know, there's some of the best public health doctors and officials in, in the world here in this country, many of whom were telling the president and telling others that uh, this was going to be a problem. I mean, you had the CDC uh, head of respiratory diseases saying at the end of February, it's no longer a question of if, it's a question of when this will be a pandemic in the United States and sweep throughout the world. And it didn't seem like anybody wanted to hear it. So, you know, as far as legacies go, this testing thing, I think, is going to be really something that, again, hopefully we can learn the lesson quickly because this is not over. We're still very much in this. Um, but the idea that we got stymied by nasal swabs, the greatest country on earth, we got stymied by really simple yeah. things that ended up leading to so many preventable deaths, I think is, uh, is it's, that's a real tragedy. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sanjay, thank you. Jim, Dan Bash, Doug Brinkley, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a leading public health expert's take on, uh, on what happens next. New optimism today from Dr. Anthony Fauci about a vaccine.
Also, his view of this milestone, why it didn't have to come to this and how to keep the virus in check with or without a vaccine. Later, Minneapolis, the death of an African-American man at the hands of police. They're firing the family, calling for charges against the officers and how the community is reacting. That and more as 360 continues. Symptoms of overactive bladder, or OAB, may be bothersome. As many as 46 million Americans, 40 years of age or older, have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. Felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at oabmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron. Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thioridazine, melaril, and melaril S, flecainide, tambacor, propafenone, rhythmol, digoxin, linoxin, or solifenacin, succinate, vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387. Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at oabmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's oabmed.com. More than 100,000 lives lost in this country, all 50 states lifting outbreak-related restrictions in some shape or form, an unhealthy percentage of people choosing not to cover their faces in public, and the president all but cheering them on. In all this, the traditional voice of caution and reason has been Dr. Anthony Fauci, who said today he was concerned about reopening too suddenly in places. Speaking with CNN's Jim Shudo, he also sounded optimistic on a vaccine. You know, Jim, it is possible, I still think, that we have a good chance, if all the things fall in the right place, that we might have a vaccine that would be deployable by the uh, by the end of the year, by December, November, December. I believe we can. Yeah. That wasn't the only headline. Jim Shudo also asked Dr. Fauci about the French government's decision to ban the drug hydroxychloroquine for use against coronavirus. Fauci said that although he was not sure the president's favorite medicine should also be banned here, he did point out that the scientific data now is quite evident, those are his words, quite evident that the drug was not effective and potentially harmful. Joining us now is William uh, Hasseltine, formerly of Harvard University's Medical School and School of Public Health, a pioneering researcher, as was Dr. Fauci, in the fight against HIV-AIDS. Uh, Professor Hasseltine, thank you so much for being with, back with us. When we spoke on, on Monday, you said we didn't need a vaccine to stop the virus, we need behavior to stop the virus. Um, and I think people really need to, to hear that when Dr. Fauci says, you know, if everything goes in the right place, we could have a vaccine by the end of this year. A, what do you think of that? And how often in creating vaccines does everything go fall into the right place? Well, those are uh, two questions and I'll uh, address both of them. But first, let me say, looking at the toll today, it's extremely sad. It's something that didn't have to happen for two reasons. We could have prevented it by behavior. And had we been prepared, only a handful of people in the whole world need to have died. And from my point of view of seeing what's happened to my friends, I have friends who've died, 
I know other people have had many friends who died. And looking at it where we stand today, it could be 200,000 people or more in the foreseeable future. And that's a, a tragedy. Now, why do I say... Well, wait, when you say it didn't have to happen, when you say it didn't have to happen, didn't have to, it could have only been a few, you know, a few people, yeah. how, how can you say that? Why? Well, let me tell you, it didn't have to happen if we had been prepared. For example, I worked very hard with the U.S. Department of Defense and Homeland Security to help save us and protect us from bioterrorism. The mechanism exists to stockpile the drugs that we think are going to come, the infectious disease. We don't know they're coming, but we think they might. There was a hole in our safety net because that legislation also allowed us to look at nature as a terrorist, nature sending viruses our way, which we knew were coming. And it was totally predictable that another coronavirus was on its way. All we had to do was stockpile those drugs, whether it's the United States or China or South Korea, and we could have treated people and stopped the infection lickety-split. We know the viruses that are working for SARS and MERS, the precedent of this virus, work against this virus too. So we could have been prepared and we could have stopped it. Once it got started, we have a good recipe for how to stop it. We look at New Zealand, we look at Australia, we look at Thailand, we look at Vietnam, we look at, uh, not Vietnam, but we look at uh, South Korea, we look at China. We see with serious epidemics, they've gone to zero for days. It's in the single digits. Right. Or di so it can be stopped without a vaccine and without a drug if we change our behavior. That was true in HIV AIDS too. And over time, people learned to change their behavior. It was pretty simple. Use condoms for casual sex. And it worked. Big behavior change. People can change their behavior. So about the Maybe not overnight, but they can. So getting back to, to my first question, which I interrupted you on, uh, the, the, the vaccine, the idea of it being by November, December, and, and things falling into place. Well, it rarely falls into place. I listened to Ken Fraser of Merck, the company that's brought more wonderful vaccines to the world than any other. And he was cautiously optimistic with an emphasis on both words, caution and optimism. He said it was not possible for him at Merck the biggest vaccine company in the world, to bring a vaccine to the market this year. That's his words. However, he's optimistic that they can solve the problem. They can solve it on a massive scale. There's a problem that you and I haven't discussed, which just came up in a uh, Associated Press poll. If there were a vaccine, how many people would take it? The answer, 51% yeah. say yes. That it's isn't incredible. enough to protect the population. So there are a lot of issues with vaccines. Will people accept them? Will they be ready? When we already know how to control the virus in a big population, it can be done through human behavior. Uh, Professor, I appreciate uh, your time uh, again. And, and that you're right, that, that poll of 50% of people saying they wouldn't take the vaccine is just, uh, you know, uh, stunning, stunning. Uh, it's stunning, idea. shocking. Uh, Professor, and, thank you. Uh, yeah. It's, it's sad, but thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Up next, Senator Kamala Harris joins us to continue this discussion. We'll talk about the president's lack of response today. Also, the speed at which her state is reopening, which some have suggested may be happening too quickly. We'll get her thoughts.
mentioned earlier the president has yet to acknowledge today the fact that 100,000 Americans have died due to the coronavirus. He stayed silent today, but his opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, issued this statement to commemorate the lives lost. This is a fateful milestone we should have never reached. We could have been avoided, according to a study done by Columbia University. If the administration had acted just one week earlier to implement social distancing and do what it had to do, just one week sooner, as many as 36,000 of these deaths might have been averted. Well, that same report said if the country had been locked down two weeks earlier, 84% of the deaths could have been prevented. Joining me now, California Senator Kamala Harris. Senator Harris, thanks for being with us. Obviously, a very sad, sobering day for this country with more than 100,000 American lives lost yeah. because of this virus. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, on this difficult day. It is tragic, Anderson. A hundred thousand lives, a hundred thousand souls, just within the last less than one hundred days, and these are the parents, the grandparents, the brothers, sisters, relatives of of people who are mourning their loss, and in in many ways the number um, it's senseless, and it's tragic, and to the point that Joe Biden made also, to some extent it was avoidable. And um, I, I, do, I do fear that we have not really had in our commander in chief any, any, any display of understanding about the devastation and any moment of real public mourning. You know, normally, um, sadly, normally in these types of tragedies we witness or attend funerals, we see the caskets. But we've not really seen that. And I think that, um, that it is it, the sad part, in addition to the numbers, is that families are in many ways isolated in their suffering. And this should be a moment that we as a nation understand and mourn the loss. I, I've never seen uh, just a leadership uh, of, of anybody in this country running this country on the one—I mean, people make mistakes. People— you know, don't do things fast enough. Mm -hmm. That, of course, happens that people are mm -hmm. human. Um, but to, on the one hand, you know, at one time of the day, push a message of, yes, you should wear masks. Here are stages that states can use to reopen. It should be a certain amount of weeks of declining numbers of, of new cases and deaths. Uh, and social distancing is important. And yes, listen to the scientists. And then that same day, maybe later that day on Twitter, or late at night, or whatever it may be, to undercut that message and mock those who wear masks and say, look, we got to liberate mm -hmm. these states and, 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 and right. take things over. I, I've never seen a leadership like that. And it, it just, I mean, for a wartime president, it's essentially having troops fight each other. Anderson, Donald Trump is not a leader. He's not a leader, and he has proven that over and over and over again. Real leadership at this moment of crisis would be to have genuine um, sympathy and empathy and, and, and compassion for the loss. It would be to act, doing things like, let's just start from today, putting in place a national testing strategy. Today, saying that the, the almost 40 million people who lost their jobs within the last 100 days should have recurrent monthly payments until we get through the pandemic. Leadership would be about saying that over half of America's workforce works for small businesses, which are, are closed, many of which may not be able to open, and we must save them by doing things like what I and, and Ayanna Presley are proposing, 
save those smallest of the small businesses with, with loans and with grants so they can keep their doors open because they, the bodegas and the, the, the barbershops and the beauty salons are part of the heartbeat of those communities. That's what real leadership would be about. I, 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 you know, I, I'm sick, frankly, of mourning the failure of Donald Trump's leadership because we never had it. So we really don't have much to mourn because we never had it. So we've lost much. Um, there's just been a vacancy there in terms of leadership, frankly. Your, your home state of California became the fourth state with more than 100,000 coronavirus cases. Do you, has the state, yeah. I mean, are things moving too quickly to reopen in California? What's your take? My, you know, I'm very proud of California's leadership. Um, from the beginning, it was a California mayor in London Breed. It was a California governor in Gavin Newsom. It was a California leader in Eric Garcetti. And I could go down the line of, of, of the folks who took on the political courage, even when it was unpopular, to say things should shut down. Let's take this seriously. Let's listen to the public health professionals, the scientists, the, the physicians. And that's how California has actually, I think, been a model. And similarly, in the decisions that are being made about reopening. It is the, the public health professionals that are helping to lead um, the, the, the ideas and, and the plans about how, what reopening should look like. And I think California in that way has been a leader because it is about public health, not about politics, but understanding that we need to have leadership that understands that when we pay attention to the public health issue, consumers will also have the confidence to go back to those businesses and in that way um, support those businesses that we obviously want to keep open and, and allow them to, to, to get through the pandemic mm. and, not, and not perish. Um, uh, Senator Harris, I appreciate your time tonight on this difficult day. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. Coming up next, a second day of protests in Minneapolis happening as we speak over the death of an unarmed African-American man with a police officer's knee on his neck. The man was saying he couldn't breathe. He died. We'll take you there when we return. America's getting back to work. In this new economy, your business needs every advantage to succeed. You need to be smart. And smart companies run on the world's number one cloud business system, NetSuite by Oracle. With NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over every part of your business, your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. It's everything you need, all in one place. Whether you're doing a million in sales or hundreds of millions, NetSuite lets you expertly keep track of every penny. It gives you the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Over 20,000 companies trust NetSuite to make it happen. Make yours one of them. Learn more by visiting netsuite.com slash ac360. From there, you can schedule a tour of NetSuite and get their free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. It's chock full of the top strategies executives are using as America reopens for business. Get your free guide and product tour now at netsuite.com slash ac360. More breaking news now. A second day of clashes between protesters and police in Minneapolis as residents demand justice after the death of George Floyd. The FBI is already investigating. Today, the city's mayor says the police officer who was caught on tape with his knee on Floyd's neck should be charged in the death of the 46-year-old African-American male. He and the other three officers who were present have already been fired. Randy Kay tonight has the story. We want to warn you, some of the video you're about to see is unsettling. It's disturbing. It's necessary to understand why the death of George Floyd has provoked such a national outrage. Please, 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 I can't breathe. Please, man, please, I'm
This was the scene in Minneapolis Monday evening. That police officer has his knee buried in the neck of a man named George Floyd. There's water from here. Please. Please. Ah, I can't breathe. Ah, Shut up. Officers had responded to an alleged forgery call and found Floyd sitting in his car. This surveillance video from a nearby restaurant shows officers making contact with Floyd, then handcuffing him. Police would later say he physically resisted, though that is not apparent from this portion of the video. Nor does the video capture the incident leading up to the arrest. After police escort Floyd away, bystanders capture this video of Floyd face down on the ground, still handcuffed, the officer's knee forcing his face into the pavement. Listen closely as the officer simply tells him to relax. Well, you got him down, man. Let him breathe, least, man. I can breathe. I've been trying to hear about him. Ah, so you can breathe, lift him. Ah, 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 One of my homies died. Ah, ah, he went to the back phone. I'm about to die to Relax. Man, I can't breathe my face. What do you want? I can't breathe. Please, the knee in my dick. I can't breathe shit. Uh -huh. Bro, get up, get in the car, man. I will. Get up, get in the car. I can't move. I've been wiping the whole car, ah. man. Get up, get in the car. Mama. Get up and get Mama. in the car right. They could have tased him. They could have maced him. Floyd struggles on the ground for five minutes. I'm through. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Witnesses on the street plead with the officers to back off. How long I gotta hold him down? Stopping his breathing right there, bro. The officer does not remove his knee from Floyd's neck, nor do the other officers do anything to help him. Soon, George Floyd lay motionless on the ground, his eyes closed. Police say Floyd appeared to be suffering from medical distress and that he died at the hospital. The four officers involved have been fired. Their chief pointing out the knee in the neck technique is not approved. What we saw was horrible, completely and utterly messed up. We watched as a white officer pressed his knee into the neck of a black man. In response, protesters took to the streets of Minneapolis, clashing with police who resorted to tear gas and non-lethal projectiles. In the pouring rain, protesters echoed some of George Floyd's final words. The FBI in Minneapolis has launched a full investigation, though George Floyd's family is calling for the officers to be charged with murder, and they want justice. Please, man. Please, man. Randy Kay, CNN, West Palm Beach, Florida. Well, the union representing the four officers, the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis, has issued a statement. They say the officers are cooperating in the investigation. They also say this, quote, now is not the time to time rush to judgment and immediately condemn our officers. Officers' actions and training protocol will be carefully examined after the officers have provided their statements. Joining us with more in the protest, Sarah Seidner in Minneapolis. So, Sarah, what's, what's the latest? 
You can hear the alarm going off in the wine and spirit store just behind me there. That is because people have broken into that store. There are a bunch of people that have gone into that store um, and are, are throwing things out. They're taking things out. It's uh, mostly beer. Uh, but you're also seeing people with signs, Black Lives Matter signs. You're seeing a lot of folks standing across from the police department. The police department, the precinct, uh, is here. It's precinct three. And what we saw earlier, Anderson, was that all of the police officers had pushed out of this. We were flanked by officers. There was tear gas being spewed everywhere. There were lots of flashbangs, uh, water bottles and rocks being thrown. And at the same time, they were pushing people down the street. And then all of a sudden, the officers began retreating back to Precinct 3. And so when they started retreating back to Precinct 3, the crowd as it gathered and gathered and gathered. And what you are really seeing here in some parts of these streets is you are seeing absolute anger, but it began with sorrow. It began with a great deal of pain after people saw that video, saw the video of an officer sticking his knee in the neck of a black man, a 46-year-old father, saw that knee sitting there for minutes upon minutes upon minutes, more than 10 minutes, and then saw his body go limp. People were so outraged by that. Their initial reaction was pain. Yeah. Their second reaction was anger. And that is being exploded out into the streets at this point in time, Anderson. And, sir, what's the latest from the county, uh, the county attorney's office? Yeah, so we heard from the mayor. The mayor has said he believes that the Hennepin County attorney needs to charge at least the officer who put his knee on the back of the neck of George Floyd. Now, the Hennepin County uh, attorney has responded and said they are going to do the best job they can, that they were horrified by the video themselves, um, and that they are going to do the best that they can uh, in this case. But they stopped short of saying whether or not charges were coming. And as you know, Anderson, that usually takes a bit of time. There has to be legal documents yeah. drawn up if they are going to charge any of these four officers. But remember, this is probably the fastest that you and I have seen officers fired. It happened within 48 hours of the incident. Yeah, Sarah Seidner, thank you for being there. Appreciate it. Up next, we remember an icon. We'll be right back. I want to take a moment to remember the life of Larry Kramer, a writer and playwright who became a hero in the fight against HIV-AIDS. Kramer died today at the age of 84. When gay men began dying of what was then referred to as a mysterious gay cancer in 1981, Larry Kramer was one of the first to take notice and take action. He was a founder of GMHC, Gay Men's Health Crisis, which took care of those who were being discriminated against, kicked out of their jobs, their homes, treated poorly in hospitals. The organization still exists today. They were, they were HIV positive or had AIDS, and they were treated terribly for it, and GMHC worked to try to help them. Larry went on to help form ACT UP, which demonstrated and demanded funding and changes in drug trials to speed up treatments. Larry Kramer dedicated his life to the fight against HIV-AIDS and the bigotry and indifference and murderous silence that surrounded it. At times, he was a voice screaming, seemingly alone in the wilderness. But he was right more than he was wrong, and he forced others to take notice. Other gay people, other straight people, politicians and scientists and doctors. He wasn't easy. He alienated people who didn't want to hear what he had to say or how he said it, but he was relentless and righteous. In 1983, Larry wrote an essay in The Advocate calling on gay men to wake up and work together to help find a cure. If this article doesn't rouse you to anger, fury, rage, and action, gay men may have no future on this, on this earth, he wrote. Our continued existence depends on just how angry you can get, 
How many of us must die, he asked, before all of us living fight back? Years later, he was in a meeting of ACT UP, trying to get other activists to stop fighting each other and focus on fighting the bigotry and ignorance and silence, which was killing so many gay people. Take a look. This is classic Larry Kramer. Plague! We are in the middle of a plague! And you behave like this! Plague! 40 million infected people is a plague! We are in the worst shape we have ever, ever, ever been in. All those pills we're shoveling down our throats, forget it. ACT UP has been taken over by a lunatic fringe. They can't get together. Nobody agrees with anything. All we can do is field a couple of hundred people at a demonstration. That's not going to make anybody pay attention. Not until we get millions out there. We can't do that. All we do is pick at each other and yell at each other. And I say to you in year 10, the same thing I said to you in 1981 when there were 41 cases. Until we get our acts together, all of us, we are as good as dead. Those words ring true today in this moment we're now facing. That, by the way, that video is from How to Survive a Plague, an extraordinary documentary I urge you to watch. What Larry Kramer and other HIV activists did saved countless lives, and it's helped every human being on Earth because they actually managed to change the approval process for new treatments and got the medical establishment to allow patients more of a voice in clinical trials. Activists did that, not just for HIV, HIV but for other drugs being worked on today. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who faced the wrath and the respect of Larry Kramer, once said there are two errors in American medicine, one before Larry and one after Larry Kramer. He called Larry, or Larry Kramer once called me a, a useless homosexual. I'd never met him, but it really hurt because I admired him so much. A short time after he said it, I went to see a play that he'd written, and he heard I was coming, and he waited after the performance to see me. He came up to me. I expected him to yell at me, but he shook my hand and smiled shyly and said, I've said some terrible things about you, Anderson. And I said, I know, Larry, but that's okay. And I want to thank you. 32 million people around the world have died of AIDS. So far, there's no vaccine yet, but there is incredibly effective treatment for those who can get it and prevention. And Larry Kramer played a big part in that. You may not have heard of him or liked him if you did, but to me, he's a hero. And now he's gone. The news continues. I want to hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime.